Awesome. Glad that you're here. I'm glad that uh, maybe if this is your first time or two being here, or if you came from clear back in the uh, Midwest, uh, join us this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We don't think it's by accident. And we th- believe it's what God is, uh, <clears throat> is doing, where God is uh, placing people. And uh, we're excited that you're here. We welcome you. Um, maybe if you don't, some of you might not know me. I'm Mark Hopkins. I'm one of the, the uh, four elders here, Tim Wiebe, the guy that looks like Santa Claus in coveralls. He's one of them. Dave Wantlin is uh, one of our other elders. He was the guy that did announcements. And Les Whitakin, raise your hand back there, Les. Les is in the middle back row. That's kind of the, the elder portion of the leadership here. Of course, we have a whole board of deacons that, that are just wonderful and uh, serve the Lord in so many capacities. Uh, super grateful for them. And uh, get to know them, I guess, was, uh, or know us if, uh, uh, if you don't. Uh, we just uh, are glad that you're here and, and uh, <clears throat> glad that you're in fellowship this morning. Would love to get to know you more. We've been in 1 Corinthians. We've been... Um, kind of bulldozing our way through the first three chapters. Uh, we come to chapter 4 today of 1 Corinthians where uh, Paul is really, really addressing the final portion uh, when it comes to church division. Uh, and it's where uh, it gets a little spicy from here on through. Like if you've read ahead in 1 Corinthians, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, 1 Corinthians is not a, 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 an epistle that is always warm and fuzzy. It's going to confront people where they are. It's going to confront people if they're sin in their lives. It's going to confront people if they're, if they're off base in some form or fashion, if they're out of relationship with God, or if there's something between them and God. The First Corinthians is that type of book. It's really confrontational, and we should see that as a good thing. Our culture sees confrontation as a bad thing. And let's be honest, there is a lot of confrontation that is not good, for sure. But confrontation in our lives that points us to Christ, that corrects us when we're wrong, that challenges us to think differently than maybe what we've, what we've been raised with or what we understand is, is culturally normal or even normal in the church, that type of confrontation in our life is actually really a good thing. And so we're diving right in here. It's, like I said, it's spicy, controversial for sure. Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions at the end of the chapter. Maybe they're not so rhetorical. I kind of took them that way, but as I've studied through it, actually I'm not sure. Maybe he's really being genuine when he says in chapter 4, verse 21, he says, what, what do you want? He's asking the Corinthian church, what do you want? Like, how do, how do you want to do this thing? You know, parents, you, you've been there in correcting your kids, right? You're like, all right. What do you want? You know, do you want a month of chores? Do you want a month of doing your siblings' chores? We didn't get too many options. And I promised my mom I would quit talking so much about the discipline that she measured out on us. I asked her that on Mother's Day. I said, am I preaching too much about how many spankings we got as kids? She said a little bit. So I won't say that today, even though it was true. But Paul's asking the Corinthians church, what do you want? How, how, how do you want to do this thing? How do you want to do this thing? He goes on to say, shall I come to you with a rod? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or in love and the spirit of gentleness. 
I don't think it was so much a rhetorical question. See, Paul's addressing the church that was uh, extremely spiritually gifted. Extremely spiritually gifted this church was. It was uh, monetarily wealthy for the day. It was diverse in the culture. But they were also blinded by two things. They're blinded by their own pride and they were puffed up by their worldly wisdom. And that, be, that pride, that being puffed up with the worldly wisdom of that Greco-Roman culture had caused them to really veer off base in several key areas of church life and several key areas of their Christian faith. So the Apostle Paul simply asked them, hey, how, how do you want to be corrected? Not if do you, not, he didn't give them the option, like, do you want to be corrected? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of that it's coming. So Paul <clears throat> was bringing correction, whether they really wanted it or not. Uh, and not only was it kind of spicy in the topics that he's going to get into in the next several chapters, but at this point it had gotten personal for Paul because uh, of the Corinthian church's prideful arrogance. And the reason why it was personal is because in their pride, in their puffed up state, they were questioning his authority as an apostle. They, they, they had gotten to that level, like, well, so who are you? You know, we want to just do our thing. You know, who are you? And that, if there's a, uh, an attitude sometimes that is so infectious in the church, so infectious in Christianity, it's that type of attitude. Well, I understand you're a you know, church leader, I understand you're a pastor, I understand maybe you're a church elder, but <clears throat> whatever, that only affects me if I show up on a Sunday. But that's not the reality of the Word of God. It's not the reality of what Paul was saying. He wasn't talking about bringing correction for one day of the week. Now, in later chapters, he will talk about that day. He's talking about an attitude correction. And Paul really gives them three things here in this chapter. He gives them a working outline of what it looks like to be a leader. Uh, I would have this. I would have every man in this fellowship on an annual basis to spend some time prayer and fasting and examine themselves what God wants them to do in regards to leadership in the fellowship. It's really a kind of an old... There's, there's certain denominations that used to be very normal. They would spend a, a month maybe. Maybe it was March or April. They would spend some time, and every man was to spend some time examining himself and saying, God, what's your calling as it relates to the body of believers that I'm a part of? Right? Not, not hey, uh, how's my golf game going? Not, how's the fantasy football league you know, treating, not how are the mariners are doing. We spend all of our time focusing on that type of stuff. But to spend some time examining yourself, seeking the Lord, prayer and fasting is a great way to start it, to what it looks like to be a leader. And Paul really gives them here in the first several verses this working outline of what it means to be a leader. The second thing that he gives them is he gives them a sarcastic rebuke for their pride and a reality check uh, for leaders in that way. We'll get into those. I'll explain that a little bit in a minute. And then at the end, he gives them a warning about who to listen to. He gives them a warning about who to listen to. What, because there's all these voices, and our culture's no different, our world's no different. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of different voices that are out there. Who are we listening to? 
I like to use this term, who's influencing your life? Who's influencing your spiritual life? Who's influencing you men uh, that trickles down into your marriage, you men at, and, and women that, as it trickles down then into your family, the way that you lead your family, the way that you raise your kids, the way that you interact in the community, especially as you interact in church. Paul gives a little warning at the very end of chapter 4 about who to listen to. All right, let's jump right at the beginning. Grab your Bibles. I'm sure Haley's probably has it on the screen. If you need it in large print, and uh, annually my eyes are getting worse, so sooner or later, at some point, I'm going to be preaching from the, you know, back there by where Les is, so I can see the same big print that's on the screen. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, let, <clears throat> let a man so consider us. First phrase that he fires off in chapter 4. Let a man so consider us. See, Paul has been addressing these division issues that affect the church. Issues of personal preference, preaching preference, wisdom preference. Who's the wisest? Who's the smartest? Who's the best debater? All in the first three chapters. All these divisive issues have stacked up and they create what I talked about last week, a consumer Christianity. Uh, that's not a new thing for our generation, although I think that our generation, and you young kids especially, heads up, it will be more so, more so when you guys are adults. I'm just going to warn you. Because what one generation does in moderation, the next generation will do in excess. And this idea, if we don't filter this out now, if we don't nip it in the bud, fathers, parents, wives, if you don't nip this in the bud for your kids, they're going to take what you do and what I've done, they're going to take it to another level. What I'm talking about is consumer Christianity. How do we define consumer Christianity? It's really right in two words. You see your Christianity as a consumer. You see yourself, you see your spirituality just as a consumer. So it's really no different, practically, than how you shop at Costco. It's really no different than how you shop at Cash and Carry or Walmart or wherever you shop. If it's not there, you go somewhere else. If you don't like it, you buy something else. If it's not your thing, you move on. And our relationships, the reason why relationships in the church struggle like they do is because we have this, this low-temp virus of consumer Christianity, and all of us are affected. It's something that needs to be repented and forsaken. It's not how God intended His church to live. It's not how God intended His church to interact with one another, just on a whatever-I-need type of basis, whatever's best for me. That's consumer Christianity. It must be purged out of the church if we're going to survive in the days that God has ordained for us to live. I can't say it any more straightforward than that. So, Paul's talking about these divisive issues. Let us, let us be so considered. Paul gives three descriptions here. The right way to consider leadership in the church. And what you will see throughout this chapter, really, you will see the opposite of consumer Christianity. And Paul doesn't put himself in that category alone. He puts himself, the other uh, apostles, Apollos, you name it, he puts them in the same category. And, and you will see a description of what it looks like not to be a consumer Christian in the coming verses. But he says, as you consider leadership, the right way to look at that leadership is this. He says there in verse 1, as servants of Christ. 
and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required that stewards <coughs> required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. So three, three descriptions. They're servants, they're stewards, and they're faithful. The idea of servants there, there's several different words in the, in, <coughs> in the language of the New Testament to describe a servant. Here Paul uses hyperterias, which is described as a subordinate servant functioning as a free man. There's a different word that's used, doulos. He does not mean that more common word, doulos. It's, it's all over the New Testament. Uh, rather, he's saying that this is a free man functioning, a subordinate servant functioning as a free man. The word hyperterias literally means this. You're an under rower. An under rower. So, think of the Viking ships. Think of the second level. And all the, all the men that are down there, two, three on an oar, you know, maybe there's a hundred or so guys, and they're pushing that boat through the water, and they all have an oar, and they have to work together, not only the three, if there's three in a line and three on the other side of the aisle, but all of them have to work together, or what's going to happen? The boat's going to go in circles. Now, if you want the boat to go in circles... Everybody on that side turns around and rows the other way. But what's the point of a boat going in circles? Right? Boats aren't made to go in circles. They're made to go through the water. And he uses this word, this idea that, that servants in the church, leadership in the church are under rowers. Under rowers. Though it's not the lowest word for servant. It's certainly not a prestigious position. Under-rowers serve the captain. Under-rowers serve the captain. Now the idea of steward here, in relationship to the master of the house, the steward was a slave. But in relationship to other slaves, the steward was a master. Do we get that concept? When we're talking about the idea of steward, a steward in relationship to the master was a slave, but in relationship to the other servants, the steward was their boss. The steward was the master deputy in regulating the concerns of the family, providing food for the household, seeing it served out at proper times and seasons and in proper quantities. He received all the cash, expended what was necessary for the support of the family, and kept exact accounts for which he was obliged at certain times to lay before the master. Uh, Bible scholar that I'm quoting, and I failed to write his name down. I think it's clerk. What did Paul and the other apostles manage is a good question. Among other things, they were stewards of the mysteries of God. We talked about that, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, <clears throat> We talked about this idea of mystery. It's all through the pages of the New Testament. It's in the book of Romans, 1 Timothy, here in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians chapter 3 gives us the best, uh, the best explanation of what the mysteries of God is. But, but these church leaders, these apostles, they managed in the sense of preserving and protecting, and they dispensed in the sense of distributing the truth that God, and here's the definition of what the mystery was, what was kept hidden for ages, now made plain to everybody, that God had opened the door of salvation to all that would trust in Jesus, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of, of, 
uh, race, regardless of... There, there are no barriers, Paul said. There's no difference. There's no difference between... He, he categorizes it right down to two things. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. In that first century, everything was kind of classified that way. You were either Jewish by heritage or you were Gentile by heritage, which meant everybody else. And Paul says, he says in Romans, he says mostly in Ephesians chapter 3, that all of that barrier is washed away. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. And this is what they saw themselves of stewards as, to the mysteries of God. Whenever Paul would hear criticism of his style or his manner, he could simply ask, uh, did I give you the truth? Like as church leadership, that's our most important role. It's not to make sure that there's a lot of moving parts, especially for a Sunday, I get it. Uh, a few weeks ago, <laughs> it was a little toasty in here. I came this morning and pushed a few buttons and made it a little cooler. But that's not our main, that's not our main thing to steward, is the thermometer. It makes it nice, it makes it pleasant. But if you're thinking about how hot it is, rather than whether you're saved and in, and in Christ, you're missing it. I'm missing it, if that's my mentality. Our main goal is to, present, is to dispense, to distribute, like the apostles did, like the church elders did, to dispense truth. That's the main goal. As a good steward, that's what he first cared about. That should be what we first care about. And there's a, a view of stewardship then that he talks about. For stewards... The most important thing then was faithfulness. Faithfulness. They had to be efficient managers of the master's resources for sure. A steward never owned the property or the resource he dealt with. He simply managed it for his master <clears throat> and had to manage it faithfully. Faithfully. Faithfulness is what God is looking for in his church. That's what we will be asked at some point. That's the examining question, is were you faithful? You had a lot, were you faithful with a lot? If you had just a little, were you faithful with a little? doesn't matter. Were you a faithful Christ follower? Were you faithful? Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 4 that that's the required uh, uh, situation. That's the, re the question that will be asked. And how are we doing? Uh, a little time for some self-evaluation on a scale of 1 to 10. How would you rate yourself? How are we doing at being God's servant, being God's steward, being God's faithful follower? Uh, you look at yourself. You examine yourself in this moment. Say, hey, I, I'm struggling here, or, or I'm gaining here. Be honest with yourself. It's a good conversation for later with, amongst you know, uh, couples and, and in the family unit. H how are we doing? How are we doing in this? As we grow in our faith, as we grow in, in Christ-likeness, how are we doing in this? And there's a key point here, a key thing to helping us operate in the sweet spot of being a servant, a steward, and to be found faithful. Three things. Three things that I've found to be extremely helpful. Uh, first is believing that God is sovereign in all things. Believing that God is sovereign in all things, that nothing misses His, his preview, nothing misses His glance, nothing, can, nothing makes God go, oh, I didn't see that. Nothing does that. 
So God is sovereign. God's sovereign in your, your, your victory. God's sovereign in your triumphs. God's sovereign on your best day. And He's sovereign on your worst, absolutely worst moment that you never thought you could endure. God is sovereign in that moment. And so for us, it's a matter of accepting that. It's a matter of believing that. And it will be tested. And God doesn't necessarily start right off with a massive test. I would say for most people, a lot of things, it's in small things, right? The key to helping us operate in the sweet sauce is, is to believe that God is sovereign in all things. The second one, then, is to trust His word and His will in all things. Trust His will, word and His will in all things. That's where the rubber meets the road. Are we willing to trust... Uh, trust comes out differently in different scenarios sometimes it means we're just we're just quiet we we need to we need to just shut our mouths (laughs) wait on god to move wait on god to to work we need to quit grinding on whatever issue sometimes that trust is active like no i i got to obey i got to step down now and i got to go and that's trusting god that's following god's word and following his will so sometimes the responses are different the question is, is how are we doing in our trusting? And uh, it's a key to operating in the sweet spot of our relationship with God. And the third one is a lot like the same, is that it's a walk by faith and not by sight. We won't get it all. We won't understand it all. We won't, we, we, we won't be able to conceive of all that God is doing. He'll give us a picture. He'll give us a glance. He'll give us a thought. He'll give us a sense of direction. But the requirement is is that we walk by faith in those things. And the problem that they were having in Corinth in that day is they were so ground up, they were so worked up when it came to wisdom that they wanted to have it all mapped out. They wanted to have it all aligned and, and, and be able to explain it all, put it all on the wall in a giant chart and show off their wisdom and show really what they're showing is they're showing their pride and their puffed up arrogance. And key to operating in God's sweet spot is to walk by faith, believing that God is sovereign, trust in His word and His will, and walk by faith. <clears throat> what am I talking about? I'll give you a little example for us. We're uh, a few months away from launching our middle daughter into the Middle East. Morgan has a call to go on mis- to be a missionary. Uh, we're totally behind it as her parents, as the authority in her life, as her father, because she's not married. Uh, but it applies to us. It's, it, it applies to her, but it applies to us as well. We had a great conversation with the couple that uh, she's going to go. She's going to go actually for a few months, check it out, come back, reload, and head back. That's the, the overarching plan, <clears throat> should the Lord continue in that direction. But we need to believe, we have to believe, like I believe, it's not optional for us to believe that God's not sovereign in this thing. He is. He's sovereign in what she's doing. He's sovereign in, in the direction of her life, just like He's a sovereign over every aspect of all of your lives. So we apply that to Morgan, that same principle. We trust in His word and His will in all things. We, tr- we are trusting in God's word 
the word that he's given for Morgan as a, as a desire of her heart to serve him and be in ministry. We're trusting in that. We've seen confirmations. We've seen what God has done in her life. We're trusting in that. So if we trust in that, then we trust in his will for her, even if it's uncomfortable for us. And all of this is a walk of faith. It'll be a walk of faith for her, not by sight. It'll be a walk of faith for us and not by sight. When we find ourselves losing the battle, struggling in our faith, compromising biblical principles, the list kind of goes on and on and on. Likely, our issues resolve around a struggle in one of these three areas. There's one of these three areas that has a flat tire. There's one of these areas that's, that, that, that we're holding on to something, saying, God, well, I trust you, but I, I want to just keep that closet door closed because that's my personal space. That's not trusting God. That's not seeing God as sovereign over that aspect of our life. Or there's actually a, a fourth thing that plays in that kind of ties back into where Paul's going in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. Or we have an addiction to approval. We have an addiction to approval. It's an issue. It's an issue in which Paul addresses here next in verse 3 where he says, but, let me, <clears throat> let, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know, that nothing against, I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Uh, essentially, and this, this, let me start before I say this. Uh, this issue of judging is a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And I think, by and large, the church has it wrong. I'll say it that way. Because we'll see this and say, well, obviously what he's saying is nobody should judge anybody for anything. That's not what he's saying. Obviously, we shouldn't make any judgment calls. I don't, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul is using that word, he's using that phrase, that idea, as a, compar- as a comparison. What he's comparing is he's comparing three against the fourth. Three types of judgments against the fourth. The three types of judgment is others, in other words, the Corinthian church. He's uh, comparing others, the world, and his own judgment of him. Those are the three that are kind of linked together. And he says they are not as important. It's not that we shouldn't make judgment calls. You make judgment calls every single day. I'll guarantee you when you leave this parking lot, you'll stop. You'll look one way or the other, hopefully. All you new drivers getting all this, you look both ways. Then again, double check up the hill. You're making, you're doing what? You're making a judgment call. We make judgment calls all day long, every single day. Every one of us do. He's comparing others' judgment, the Corinthian church, the world's judgment. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthians, or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. So those three areas of judgment. For I know that nothing against myself, yeah, I'm not justified in this. In other words, he says, I'm not aware of anything in my life. But because I'm not aware of an issue in my life, I'm not aware of something, that doesn't justify me either. 
No. Those three judgment spots are versus God's judgment. I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. He who, who sees, am I faithful? He's tying these thoughts together. He who said, will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's the one that I'm worried about that type of judgment in my life. But it's not an excuse not to judge anything. It is a caution there in verse 5 a little bit. Therefore judge nothing before it's time until the Lord comes. In other words, it's not our job to make God's ultimate judgment on somebody else. But there are judgments that need to be made. And we're going to get into that in coming chapters. I want to make it real clear of how that flows out. Because I think a lot of Christianity is failing to do the latter because they think somehow they're doing the former, what he's writing about here in verse 4 and 5. Now, the reason why God has this uh, is because God's pattern of dealing with humans is consistent all the way through. It's God who changes hearts. It's God who parents from the heart, from the inside out. And it's God who will judge the motives of the heart, or as Paul says here, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. It's not just about judgment. It's about also receiving God's praise. That verse tells me full transparency is required. Like when we're not transparent with God, when we think we're going to lock something in a closet, an aspect of our life, a hidden addiction, a thought pattern, a whatever, if we're going to lock a portion of our life in a closet and it won't be accessible to God, guess what God's going to talk about? He's going to talk about what's in that closet. To me, that says transparency is the key to praise. So if you want this idea that, the, that there's no darkness revealed out of the counsel of our hearts, if we want the praise, to me, that's pretty simple. Paul's calling them to be transparent, to be honest, to be real. To be genuine. Let's move on. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. For who makes you different from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed, now if you did in, <clears throat> indeed, indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? See, the puffed up state that the Corinthian church was in meant that there was this pride problem. And that pride was evident in the cliques that arose there in Corinth within the church around different apostles and the cliques that uh, they weren't as much of they weren't a, they were a symptom of the issue that's what I want to get to the divisions in the church were actually not the problem they were a symptom of the problem the real issue the root virus that they were struggling with the the flu that they had they had the pride flu they were puffed up about who they were puffed puffed up about what they knew and paul asked 
three questions, the who question, the what question, and the why question. Who makes you different from another? Is there a difference between us? It's because of what God has done in us. So there's no reason for pride. And what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we have comes from God. Everything that we have comes from God. Why do you glory, he asked? Why do you glory as if you had not received it? If what you have spiritually is a gift from God, why do you glory in it as if it were your own accomplishment is the question. And there's no reason for this type of self-glorying pride that they struggled with. So he pins them down and he says, listen, uh, this is the same whether it's me or Apollos, that you might think uh, uh, evenly about us, that you might think honestly and level about us, not putting us up way too high, and that was in chapter 1, I'm from Apollos, I'm a Paul, I'm a Christ, I'm a Cephas. They were putting people up on high pedestals, choosing their favorite guy. He's not saying that. (coughs) He's coming against that, but he's not saying you don't put us down too low either. We still have apostolic authority. Excuse me. Then in verse 8, Paul turns to sarcasm to make his point. <clears throat> now, if you know me very well, <clears throat> you know that my uh, second language is sarcasm. It's all right to laugh. I get it. <clears throat> I, I am super sarcastic <laughs> at times. I try not to be, and I definitely try not to be here. Uh, <clears throat> It works. And Paul's going to use sarcasm. He's going to turn to sarcasm in, in the way that he's addressing, the way that he's writing, the way that he's communicating with them to drive home these very points about where they are as a church. So he turns to sarcasm. Look there in verse 8. If you just skim read 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> you will miss the sarcasm. It takes a little deeper look, a little more examination, a little more understanding of, of what's going on here. Uh, and many times I will say in the past that I've read through there and I thought, <clears throat> he's really correcting them, but why is he saying these things? Not understanding in the past these deeper things, uh, it doesn't make sense, but if you look at it for the sarcastic statements that they are, you will say, uh, these aren't compliments. So Paul starts right off with a big statement. He says, hey, 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 Corinthian church, you're already full. I'll give you my best sarcasm. Right? You're already full. What, what more do you need? You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. And you should underline this in your Bible. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He goes into this comparison back and forth. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ, right? You're really, you're really, really smart in your relationship with Jesus. You're really wise, puffed up with your wisdom. Puffed up with your knowledge. We're weak, he says, of the apostles. Oh, but you're strong. Corinth, you're really, really strong. You got it all together. You were distinguished. But we, your church leadership, we're dishonored. 
To this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We've been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring, that's not a phrase that's often used anymore, the off-scouring of all things until now. The section is thick with sarcasm and contrast. In one felt swoop, Paul addresses their overestimated view of themselves and their underestimated view of him as an apostle. I told you to get personal. In the middle of this section, we have this description of the apostles. For we have been made, the part that I ask you to underline, if you would, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. To know why that's so important, in this first century culture, Roman generals would parade through the streets and into the Colosseums, the citizens that had been conquered in the latest battles. In that Greco-Roman culture, this was the ultimate level of shame and embarrassment. Of shame and embarrassment. Everything that that was highlighted culturally pointed the other way. Right? And so, in a modern day vernacular, the, the, the... you guys will get this. Man, you guys will get this idea. After the Super Bowl, in one locker room, you have cheers, excitement, full-grown men, 400-pounders laying on the ground crying because of their life's work finally came to a culmination of victory, and they were the best at their craft. And the champagne's flying. Everybody now wears ski goggles. You got the picture, fellas? You know what I'm talking about? Ladies, it's about this time where you're like, eh, I don't need to watch all this. Right, we're off. We're playing cards in the kitchen table. But guys know what I'm talking about. So you have this massive victory. You have this, this huge excitement. Now they've got these huge you know, confetti cannons that they shoot off in the stadiums and all that goes with all of the victory. Right? And what do you have in the other locker room? You have a coach that comes to the podium holding back all of the emotions holding back all of the, 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 the dread of having to step up and say something. And everything on his face is saying, we're defeated. I feel shameful. We work so hard for this. He's thinking, he might not be saying, he's going to give regular platitudes of how his guys did and maybe a few keys as to why they lost the game. But everything on that coach's face says, we're defeated We came so close, and we're defeated. Everything on that coach's face says, for a while, (laughs) every night on ESPN, our team's going to be the spectacle. Well, the other team gets all the glory. It's interesting that Paul uses that word. We're made a spectacle. We're made a spectacle to God and to men. Not shooting the, the... The victory's coming, don't get me wrong. If you don't think that's true, just flip to the right in your Bible and read the last chapter, the last book. It's coming, but for now, he says, we've been made a spectacle. We've been made a spectacle. Although, even that's true, even though that that's true, and that's how Paul categorizes himself and the rest of the apostles in their low state, and they're having to work with their hands and being hungry and being without and taking all the beatings that they took. 
uh, <clears throat> one thing stood true. They still t- stuck to those three principles of God's sovereignty, trusting in God's will and his, and his, and his word, and trusting that God calls them to walk by faith. And so in that state, regardless of what they had or didn't have, regardless of whether the confetti is on them or not on them, regardless of whether they were part of leading the parade or in the following conquerors heading into the Colosseum to be lion bait, uh, it really seems to me that the apostles really didn't care what the world thought of them. As long as they were being faithful to God's calling and ministry. He goes on to say in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you. <laughs> when I first read that, uh, stepping through real slow, I'm like, uh, are you sure about that, Paul? <laughs> are you sure? Because I, I know, and the reason why I'm laughing about it is because I know me. Because when my sarcasm gets rolling, it wants to roll to the point that the other person does feel shame. It's like, this is retarded. This is so stupid. I'm going to get more sarcastic. Hopefully you will see how stupid your argument is, your point is. I want you to be shameful in that. That's how the flesh works. He says, I don't want you to shame, be shamed. But as my beloved children, I warn you, Paul pivots the idea, pivots the paradigm, and comes back to a principle here that's found throughout the word. But as my beloved children, I want to warn you. I'm bringing correction. And, and if, if Robbie was here, he would, I've, I've done this so many times with him growing up. Like he, can, he could see it coming, especially as a teenager. Because like, I, I would get in his face. I would be as sarcastic as I possibly could. I would lean on him absolutely as hard as I possibly could, knowing that if we could get him to turn a corner in whatever he's struggling with, whatever the issue was, that in the end he would be stronger for it. So by the time then he got to 17, 18, we could have a nose-to-nose and he would know what I'm doing. He would know that I'm trying to turn him. You guys missed a few of these. There was a few sideline conversations, and I say sideline literally, on the football field where he would come off, and I'm saying, hey, you got to do, and he would, he'd be right back at me. There would be this back and forth, you know. I'm, do, I'm dealing now with an 18-year-old that's bigger than me, stronger than me, and has got a lot of plastic padding on. It's not exactly like a spot to go physical. I get it. But using the right language, using the right concept, him understanding, hey, I'm trying to tell you that you need to do this even though everything that you're thinking is going a different way, you need to get move this way, you need to move that way, you need to take a left step first, right step, whatever it was, whatever the correction point was. And I would be sarcastic at times, but he understood that I was turning him into a positive direction. And it come back to this concept, uh, my beloved children, I want to warn you. Paul says, I want to warn you. I'm not just ripping on you. I'm not being sarcastic without a point and without a purpose. He says, I want to warn you. Verse 14, verse 15 says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son. Notice the description who's my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere and in every church. 
Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? The word instructor there back in verse 15 in the Greek uh, has a very specific job. A very specific title going with a specific job. In the Greek it means a guardian or a slave guide. It was, it was the guy that escorted the Jewish boys or the, the boys of that culture to and from school. To and from school. Do you know this word, this, the Greek word here, and I can't pronounce it, but the Greek word for instructor here is only used three times in the Bible. It's used here in 1 Corinthians 4 and twice in Galatians 3 where the Apostle Paul refers to the law as this. It's a schoolmaster. He refers to the law, the Old Testament law, as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to bring people to Christ. That's the same concept here that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as an instructor in Christ. Very important role and purpose. Paul's saying here, you might have 10,000 of these. You might have dozens and dozens of schoolmasters. You might have a lot of people pointing you to Christ. Be saying you have one father in the faith. You have, you, have, you have one person that shared the gospel with you. And that's me. And that's why he calls them beloved children in verse 14. That I want to warn you. Paul says it by comparison. You can have 10,000 schoolmasters, but only one father. He says, imitate me. Imitate me. Imitate Paul's preaching of the gospel. His approach to ministry, his dependence on God, his humility, the list goes on and on and on. And as a bonus, as a bonus, Paul says this, where is it? In verse 17, for this reason, because I want you to imitate me, I'm sending you Timothy. Uh, Timothy has a, is a very interesting study, and sooner or later, down the road, we're going to preach through First and Second Timothy. Not so much that it's about Timothy, but because of what Paul writes to Timothy. But in looking at Timothy and looking at through the pages of the epistles, he has a real fascinating job in the life of the church. Uh, he's what I would term uh, a church troubleshooter. <laughs> Paul sends him here and there troubleshooting issues, and that's his point here. For this reason, I send Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways. Paul, so Timothy's going to go and be a reminder. Hey, this is what Paul said. Hey, this is what he meant. This is what Paul said. This is what he meant. And he's going to continue to point the Corinthian church to the things that Paul's talking about in these epistles. In essence, he's going to be what we would term probably a life coach as they correct these issues that were causing chaos and problems there in Corinth with the hope that he would make it there himself to come not only with words but with the power of God. See, there's an interesting uh, connection here, an interesting uh, back and forth. If the Lord wills, and I know, <clears throat> and I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Paul wasn't worried about what people were saying. He didn't care about what I shouldn't say he didn't care about what they're saying, but in comparison to what they're doing, 
in comparison to how their life was going, in comparison of, of how they were following. That's where the power is displayed. The power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed in changed lives. That's what he was looking for. Not their lofty opinions. He's looking around saying, all right, who's different here? Where were you? Where are you now? And he's going to talk about that in some of the spicy uh, uh, statements that he makes in the coming chapters. Such were some of you, he uses that phrase. Such were some of you. So you used to be this way, and now you're this way. So he's looking at this idea saying, all right, uh, who's actually got the power of changed life? Who's got the Holy Spirit working in them? And who's just puffed up with their own words? With the hope that he would make it there himself, of course. With the hope that he could come and, and spend some time with them, bring some correction, and bring correction with the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God is displayed because of your changed life, because of my changed life. Not because of whether, just because I'm not bashful about speaking in public. That has nothing to do with it. The power of Christ in you, the power, the kingdom of God power that, is, that, that God wants us and expects us to operate in, the power of the Holy Spirit is expressed not through so much what we say, but it's expressed in your changed life. And so when people see you that haven't seen you for 20 or 30 years, are they seeing that? Are they seeing a changed life? Are they seeing a culturally normal, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, I know for me, it's, this is a real tender spot for me because when I was, you know, young in 18, 19, I knew how to play the angles. I knew how to look good here in church. I knew how to come, raise my hands in worship, do all the right things, look all a certain way in the community, and then the rest of the time do something else. That's not the power of a changed life. The power of a changed life is, is that what's happening uh, in our lives, what happened in my life, what brought me to a screeching halt on I-90 in Valentine's Day, 1990, was God's saying, hey, time to wake up. I'm going to change you. Not just allow you to look one way one time and look differently a different way, a different time. The kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of God expresses itself through changed lives. So we gear up to close and David's going to come for communion. The last two things is what we started with this morning where Paul says, hey, so what do you want? You know, back to the question, like how, how do you, and I think it's a question we should all ask ourselves. I think it's a question that we should all uh, uh, entertain in our own mind, but also put before the Lord, or as if the Lord's putting it before us, like how, how do you want correction to go in your life? I think God gives us actually a couple options <laughs> when it comes to discipline. And a lot of times the rod comes because we fail to embrace God's first few warnings. We fail to embrace God's uh, gentle turns and nudges. We're not used to that, that little nudge, like a turn in a horse, a little nudge with the right leg, and the horse goes to the left. We don't feel those nudges. 
And a few times of that, next thing you know, it's going to get a little bit more severe. So what do you want? Paul leaves the ball in their court. Which Paul did they want to come? The Paul with the rod of cor correction? The rod of correction used by shepherds to smack disobedient sheep? Or the Paul with the spirit of gentleness? The Paul that was saying, hey, let's go this way. We need to make some course corrections in this church. Let's go this direction. This, this, what you're doing, he's saying to the Corinthian church, the way that you're going on here is not going to work. We have to make some course corrections. We make those course corrections with a spirit of gentleness, or we can do it with the stick. There's no doubt that Paul would prefer to come in gentleness, but he was leaving that decision up to the Corinthian Christians. It's a tough section to work through from this way. A tough section because Paul's facing some real challenges in ministry here. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of contrast maybe between, say, the church in Corinth and the church in Philippi. There's a lot of contrast, if you read through the epistles, a lot of contrast. Uh, he, he writes pretty heavy to the Corinthian church, not so much to, say, the Ephesian church. He writes really heavy and some doctrinal issues to the Galatians church, not so much to, like I mentioned, uh, church in Philippi. But it's a tough scenario. Paul faces some real challenges in ministry. How to confront sin without being too harsh or implying that you're above sin. I think he does a great job with that. And how to get people to conform their lives to the gospel when they think too highly of themselves. Uh, this is tough ministry work. Uh, but it, and the reason why it's tough ministry work is because it's heart work. That's where God specializes. God specializes in heart work. Only God can change the hearts. Only God could change the hearts of the Corinthian church. Only God can change our hearts or other people and other churches that have been struggling along with, with issues similar to this. Only God can make those changes. It's heart work inside. That's why it requires humility, and that's why he was, had humility on full display. David, come on up and lead us in communion, if you would.